You're listening to Playback, a Variety podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. It's no easy trick to amass the kind of following my guest today has. His many films from Shaun of the Dead to Scott Pilgrim vs. the World have carved their own spot in modern cinema and attracted a number of moviegoers who will gladly line up for whatever he has next in store. The reason, I think, is that there is a clear voice involved, and that too is no easy trick. Edgar Wright is here to talk about that, his new movie Baby Driver, and a whole lot more. Edgar, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, I say that having a clear voice uh, as a filmmaker is no easy trick because it's kind of, I think it's something that you have to work at, you have to fail, you have to stumble, you have to uh, hone it, you know. So it kind of takes screwing up to find your way, in my opinion. Uh, so I kind of wanted to start there. Let's talk about your failures. No, no, no. <laughs> but, but, but actually early on, just when you were kind of trying to find your voice, maybe before you made a feature, can you recall any of those early pitfalls that started to point you in the right direction? Well, funny enough, I mean, I did, you know, like, um, I felt like I sort of stumbled out of the gates straight away because um, although I feel quite much more fondly about it now, but uh, I made a film when I was 20 years old. Uh, Shaun of the Dead is not my debut. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I made a film when I was 20, which was actually reviewed in Variety. Which was actually, when it was reviewed in Variety, uh, I felt like, oh, this means it's like a proper film. <laughs> <laughs> it was called A Fistful of Fingers. And it was a, a like a goofy, like zero budget Western that uh, made on 16 mil on the budget of like 20 grand. You know, the same as like a low-budget music video. Shot an entire feature on that. I say in, in feature in inverted commas because it is seventy-eight minutes long, mm-hmm. and even at seventy-eight minutes, it's kind of padded out, padded out with a long credit sequence and a long <laughs> end credit sequence. And um, it was actually something that one of the the things that happened on that movie that have like sort of like you know basically sort of dictated my working methods for the rest of my career. Because um, I prior to that, I just I, I got my I just used to make sort of amateur movies like on Super 8, and then when I was actually 16, I won a I won a video camera on national TV in the UK. I won a competition <laughs> through Comet Relief. Then when I had this video camera, I went sort of like just making movies all the time at school. But you know, I was like the sort of when I was doing my own movies, I was like shooting them, I was operating. You know, um, and never that great at like lighting or not. You know, sort of like, but I was basically like sort of the only person behind the camera. I was like sort of directing it, shooting it, sometimes holding the boom at the same time. <laughs> um, and then actually doing my foot, and I went to art college, and then sort of got this meager amount of money together. Although when you're 20 years old, 20 grand is a lot of money. Um, so we got this money together to make a, a 60 mil feature, but. Um, you know, it was the first time really working with the crew and first time sort of delegating the sort of some of the artistic um, work to other people. And it was just a sort of a real lesson in terms of like working with a crew and also just having to sort of get your vision across to other crew members. And, you know, it was a movie that we made. I was shot it in the summer of 94. We had no video assist and we had no dailies. I think we had dailies once in the entire shoot because we couldn't blind. afford it. Completely flying blind. So sometimes when you get into the edit suite and it's like, oh, every take is soft. Okay, <laughs> so I guess this shot is not in the movie. Or like there's some like action shot, there's like one take of it. And at one point, during, I, I actually, it was so low budget that I became the assistant editor on my own movie mm. because we couldn't 
people were just working for nothing. And I was there every day. So I was like, well, why don't I be the assistant editor? And then, you know, it'd be things like you'd like, I, I moved to London to edit the movie and, uh, and the editor was actually, um, we, I say we edited at Pinewood Studios. Um, now that sounds kind of fancy to be editing at Pinewood Studios with your first movie, but the reality of it was this. And we were not there legally. <laughs> like we were there sort of like sneaking in and like editing in a broom cupboard. Like somebody in the post-production department let us have this broom cupboard. And my editor was actually sleeping there at night. So come like nine o'clock when the security guards were going around, he'd get in the edit, sleep overnight and have like a torch and a book. And I'd see him again in the morning and he'd like sort of do that five nights a week. So he was pretty crazy and it was like a I mean so the thing that I really learned with that movie is that I basically ended the movie I just didn't have enough coverage I didn't you know the assemble edit of the movie and the assemble edit is when you put every scene at its maximum length that it could possibly be with every take mm-hmm. so most films like as as per example say for example like Hot Fuzz the assemble edit would probably be like two and three quarter hours long mm-hmm. like a good 45 minutes longer than the finished film and then you cut it down but the the, the assemble edit of Fistful of Fingers at its longest possible that it could possibly be was 72 minutes long <laughs> and then I realised we had a problem and like and I remember like uh, I drove uh, my, my producer a guy called Daniel Figuero was so mad at me because I called our one investor who was a local newspaper editor who seen some of my amateur movies and gave me 20 grand to lose on a sort of he had money to lose on a tax loss and the, my <laughs> film was the tax loss um, I called him up and I told him exactly what I thought of the film my own film I, you know so I f- completely freaked out the investor because I said I think it's not good enough <laughs> I don't think it's kind of like you know like it's, it's, it's too short we should shoot some more stuff I think it's a disaster and when the producer found out that I called the investor and said that he was so furious at me but then this completely backfired on me because then the investor, whose name is Mike, came to London. He was in. He was uh, from my hometown in Somerset, and he came to London where we moved to edit the movie. So you know, you learned a lot. Well, this is this is what happened. This is where it really backfired on me. The investor watched the movie and he says, "I think it's great." <laughs> so then I was like screwed. It's like no reshoots, no additional material. Got to try and make it work with what I have. The thing that it did teach me though was like gotta have coverage. Overshoot. Yeah, I mean not can. overshoot or just make sure you can't pace anything if you don't have the shots. Yeah, you know, and, and I do a lot of setups in my movie. But I don't. But there's very rarely, and if you ask anybody who works on the movie, there's very few shots that are not in the movie. It's mm-hmm. not like you, I'm shooting 15 cameras and um, you know you figure it all out in the edit. It's like usually like one or two cameras. Sometimes in an action scene, maybe three or four. But that's it. Mm-hmm. And pretty much every setup is in there. That's really like a lesson learned on the first film is that you cannot pace a film if you don't have the shots. Yeah. And I was like left with this kind of rough cut which I had to release because I had nothing else to cut to I had no way of pacing it up and I think I've kind of overcompensated for it ever since <laughs> well that's good you gotta take something away from that and uh, it sounds like it was fun by the way I mean I'm sure you had a blast making the movie some terrible reviews for that movie Empire gave it one star what was the Variety review like? the Variety review was pretty good oh good so good. thank you Variety said <laughs> Edgar Wright shows promise so thank you Variety <laughs> we were I'm ahead here, of the curve I'm here 22 years later to make good on that promise <laughs> Bruce Campbell was here one time and he was talking about the reviews for uh, 
I guess he was talking about Evil Dead, and, and he was like, you know, to them, making it was getting in variety. Like, oh, we wanted to get into variety, yeah. and then they reviewed the movie, and it was a pan, and he was like, oh, but we, still we, in we didn't really want to be in variety. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, talking about that voice, um, do you find that you have to fight to maintain that voice? I mean, I think you've had great production partners on your films, but uh, you still wonder when you have a voice so specific, so so uh, clear, if it's something that the artist has to fight for a lot. Well, I think anything, any any like original movie or anything that's like, you know, not previous IP or like it's not a franchise or something. If you're making any kind of original movie, just the very act of getting it made is like just about persistence of vision, because there's no like. Um, you know it's not any no original film is in the release calendar it's like something that's like you know all this you know everybody's hoping it might be good and um i think i've been lucky in the like um you know i've been i've I've stuck with pretty much the same producers throughout um i mean naira park is my producer i've worked with since spaced and then eric fauna has produced four of my five movies you know, and and for the most part, like there's been some kind of continuity. I did four movies with the Universal. This one is with like TriStar and MRC, but like I have the same producers, mm-hmm. so that's always great. So having like sort of, you know, Naira and Eric as a team is obviously incredibly important. And I think it's just about what those guys do is kind of protect your process. If there's a sort of way that you work that's not like other directors then they're there to kind of protect that. Mm. I mean, it still means that you always have to sort of, even like six films in, you still have to defend parts of what you do. It's like, oh, this is the way I want to do it, and this is how I do it, and this is the way that I work. Um, but I think anything, any you know, I, I think I've been really inspired actually by um, other directors who I feel like sort of, um, you know, sort of double down on their own, Style, or they're just like I said, a persistence of vision. I feel like that with Quentin Tarantino and Wes Anderson, especially. I always felt with like Wes Anderson, like sort of this, sort of like this. You know, it's something that he he can he can see this thing, and he's going to keep sort of powering along with it. And then you know, like I think eight. I don't know what Grand Budapest Hotel was his seventh film or the eighth film. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but like his biggest hit. Yeah. You know, and and seemingly, if you just looked at title and synopsis alone, seemingly the most esoteric and idiosyncratic, <laughs> and it's like massive worldwide hit. Mm-hmm. So I find those things incredibly inspiring. I find like sort of you know, and funny enough, I I worked on. Um, Grindhouse with uh, I did a tiny part of that with like Tansy. don't don't <laughs> well, my finest seventy five seconds um, but uh, you know it was interesting on that because that was a I, I I knew you know sort of got to know Quentin very well at that point and seeing him you know take responsibility for its failure and also recover from it and then kind of rather than sort of retreat and do something safe actually kind of then make one of his most ambitious films mm-hmm. I found that incredibly inspiring it's like sort of this uh, a thing like you know rather than kind of like sort of retreat from it is actually saying oh I'm actually going to like sort of now, now I'm going to uh, uh, like sort of attempt my most ambitious movie you know mm-hmm. Glorious Bastards so I think that's the thing with a sort of anybody making original films you know I, I really changed my sort of attitude to sort of um, I never on in social media I never ever talk about um anymore i never talk about films being bad um 
because I think once you start to sort of make them, you realize that nobody sets out to make a bad movie, and that you know, and and also a little bit of empathy goes a long way. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just. Um, you know, especially with any original movie, it's like sort of like I think, I, I, you know, you're always rooting for them because like when those things kind of like sort of break through, it's it's um, you know, it's good for the soul and it's also good for the future of cinema. You know, yeah. Um, your movies tend to be you know modestly budgeted, uh, and I want to talk about Scott Pilgrim, which was maybe combined all of your other movies combined. It, it, maybe this movie cost about what those cost together it was like something 80 million big budget big scale um uh it didn't work at the box office for whatever reason and i'm sure you've post-mortem to this thing to death but i I did want to talk about it a little bit because as you can see i'm kind of curious about lessons learned along the way so what have you taken from that experience since well it's it's a weird one that because um you know uh the only real thing to take away from it, I'm very proud of the movie. There's a couple of things that I'd change about the movie, but not much. I and I definitely wouldn't change anything about the way that it looks or sounds or feels. I think actually that's one of the things that I'm like sort of proudest of is that he was like a studio movie that kind of like doesn't really look and feel like anything else. Mm-hmm. I think the sort of the toughest thing with that is actually where you um just in the marketing and i don't mean that and i'm going to be very clear about this is like even just being on the press tour for that movie you sort of like aware that like if a film is difficult to distill into one sentence you know like when you watch a film on in a hotel and it's got like the one sentence that describes the movie and it's the sort of the film and it's kind of like most simplistic description a one sentence synopsis the TV guide blurb. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Scott Pilgrim can never comfortably fit into that. Yeah. And I always remember doing the press tour for that movie. And at the start of the press tour, you know, people would say, so how would you describe Scott Pilgrim? And I'd say, well, you know, it's like an action, fantasy, romance, martial arts, comedy. And you, I could always feel, the more I'd say that, I could always feel in my head that once I'd said two genres, like a buzzer was going off. <laughs> and then by the end of the press tour, I was just saying, it's an action comedy. Because <laughs> I think it's sort of like people are somewhat confused about what exactly it is. So it's that, it's that thing that I think is unfortunately like a sort of slightly a nature of the business is that, um, you know, like people want, people want something fresh. People don't, don't want the same old thing, but they want to be somewhat kind of like grounded in something that they recognize. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there was one thing. I mean, it didn't really affect the writing of Baby Driver, but it was something that when it came to the marketing, you think, oh, well, the good thing here is that we have, like, lots of marketable elements and then the sort of the stylization and the stuff that's a bit more cutting edge and original is, like, is, is um, you know, they are, they are like, um, complementing each other. Whereas I think with sort of Scott Pilgrim, you know when they cut a trailer together and I thought actually the trailer was really good I gotta say but you could sort of tell that some people would watch that and say oh my god best film ever and other people are like what is that mm-hmm. like audiences sitting in a multiplex seeing that trailer guys I don't understand what this is yeah I mean it's interesting though what's funny is that I think people over the years they always want me to throw marketing under the bus which I always refuse to do and one of the reasons for that is that Michael Moses at Universal I know that it was like his, he, you know, he regularly said, he goes, this is one of the favorite films I've ever worked on. He Universal. was in love with that movie. Yeah. I talked to him at Comic-Con. I mean, they were, they were trying, they were trying some interesting things with that movie. You know? Well, he sent me this really funny email and, um, 
the Monday morning after it came out, um, he sent me this email and it just said, or it had just three words long. It just said, yeah, it said, uh, years, not days. <laughs> Which I was very happy with because I sort of, I felt the same way. And I mean, it's, a, it's a, you know, um, I mean, the thing about it that's nice, I guess, is that like, and it's funny, I remember Ron Meyer did that speech. You remember when Ron Meyer did this speech at like a, a film festival where he savaged the Universal Slate? Do you remember oh, that? Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And somebody sent me a link to the story. I think it was on, like, in Variety even said, Ron Meyer savages Universal Slate. And somebody said, have you read this? And as soon as I saw the link, I was, like, sweating. Because I was like, oh, God. Like, <laughs> um, and then what was funny, and I don't really want to mention what the other films are because some of my friends directed them. But he sort of savaged, like, a bunch of movies. said, oh, this movie's, like, mediocre. This movie cost too much. This movie was terrible. Didn't deserve to do well. He said, Scott Pilgrim, that was a good film. That deserved to do better. And I was thinking, oh, my God. And I emailed, like, uh, Ron Meyer, and I said, thank you, for, thank you for letting me off the hook. And I said something. I said, hopefully, in 30 years' time, it will have done enough midnight screenings that it will be in the black. <laughs> It has been, I mean, it has been, the measure of something, though, in terms of it being like a catalog title for the studio is how many times has it been reissued on Blu-ray mm-hmm. or in different special editions? And the answer is a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so maybe at some point that. in the future, Scott Pilgrim will be, you know, like Rocky Horror or something. It'll be one of those films that's like, Scott Pilgrim's in the black in 2037. <laughs> Movies like that have a life that, that, that it far extends its box office life so yeah I mean absolutely right that's not something obviously on on our business side that's not something to aspire to because like nobody sets out to make you don't set out to make sort of um, uh, you want it to do well you know straight off the bat but you realize that how many of your favorite films you look back and you think oh I guess like The Thing didn't do that well you know the the Blade Runner didn't do that well so like I mean I'm not putting my Scott Pilgrim and Blade Runner on the same sort of um Sure. You know, pedestal. But it is that thing where you sort of realize that, like, when you... Sometimes, actually, a lot of films when I was growing up that I really loved, you know, that you have no idea how they did. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. So I'm, 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 you know, like, sort of, I'm... I don't know if it taught me anything. It's just the sort of that you need to, um, for some audiences, need to be a bit more grounded, right. um, you know. You came out of that experience and into what would become another, you know, I guess harrowing might be the word experience with Marvel and Ant-Man and, and trying to make that work with Marvel. Uh, you had been working on that you before that. harrowing. Though. It made, it made it sound like word. I was having like an ODing on heroin or something. <laughs> yeah, it's the wrong word. But, you know, just looking back at that experience with Marvel with some distance – do you feel like still there was absolutely no way forward together on that project? Well, I think the thing is, is that like I, uh, well, also I did make another film in between actually, and, and uh, you know I, I made the world's end in between Scott Pilgrim and um, an Ant Man, mm-hmm. um, or rather not Ant Man. So um, I think the thing with that is the most diplomatic, you know, answer is that. Uh, you know, I wanted to make a Marvel movie, but I don't think they really wanted to make an Edgar Wright movie. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I think the thing is what kind of happened, and it was, it was a really heartbreaking decision um, to have to walk away after having worked on it for so long. Cause me and Joe Cornish, in some form, you know, 
I mean, it's funny, like, so people say, oh, they've been working on it for eight years. And that was somewhat true. But in that time, I'd made three movies. So yeah. it wasn't like I was working on it full time. But after The World's End, I did work on it for like a year. I was going to make the movie. But then, you know, I was the right director on it. And then they wanted to do a draft without me. And, you know, having written all my other movies, that's kind of like, it's like a tough thing to kind of um, move forward thinking oh I, I don't you know if i do one of these movies i would like to be the writer director mm-hmm. be suddenly becoming like a director for hire on it you're sort of less emotionally invested and you know it's a sort of i you know you start to wonder why you're there really i mean the good thing that came out of it is that like i got to kind of like move on to this which is a script that i'd already written and the, uh, maybe one of the ironies about it is I had thought in the back of my head I thought well you know if the Marvel movie does well maybe I'll have enough muscle to get Baby Driver made mm-hmm. and so it's ironic I guess that I didn't make that movie and I got Baby Driver made and with the studio which is I think with an original movie is very rare yeah. and the other important thing for me is the people you know like almost the entirety of my crew who were going to do that movie sort of left in solidarity mm-hmm. um, and so it was really important to me to get another film going so I could kind of re-employ them all sure. so the funny thing about Baby Driver is it, it pretty much features all the HODs who were going to do the other movie with me heads so, of department for everyone heads of home. department heads of department <laughs> I know variety uh, <laughs> listeners I understand that one uh, and then the last question along these lines I don't mean to belabor this but I just uh, I, what, what I'm trying to do here is is make it clear where your headspace is when you came into Baby Driver which I, is my favorite movie you've made oh thank you so just to lift your spirits a little there I know it's starting to turn into a real bummer Chris <laughs> but just out of curiosity <laughs> with, with your experience on Ant-Man and Scott Pilgrim have you become at all trigger shy about scale of that sort um, I don't think so I mean I think something that like um, you know uh I think I think the thing is is it always I mean I, I take a point of pride I mean even with something like Scott Pilgrim which is like sort of a more expensive movie is um, I it, the funny thing is I think it looks more expensive than it actually was mm-hmm. you know like it was expensive but I think it looks even no, more true, expensive yeah. than that and I think that's true of like you know Hot Fuzz which costs like 15 million but people like I, I speak to people in this Hollywood even the other day I did a 10th anniversary screening of that with Jordan Peele moderated 10 years yeah 10 years wow. ago I did a 10th anniversary at the Vista with Jordan Peele moderating and he was like how do you make that for 15 million and I'm sort of looking at it thinking I don't know I mean I guess it's just like I mean I think that's true of most of them like Shaun of the Dead cost 4 million I know maybe 4 million pounds so that's like 6 million dollars in 2004 money Hot Fuzz cost 15 um, World's End cost like 27 mm-hmm. you know um, and Baby Driver I probably even this variety I shouldn't disclose the budget but it, I would say it looks twice as expensive as it was <laughs> <laughs> so I always say that as a point of pride that's, that's the important thing to me is it's not I'd rather I think the thing is also once you get into like uh, movies that cost 200 million dollars I think there's an enormous amount of waste going on Mm -hmm. and I think you know one of the sort of problems with those with some of those movies is that they kind of shoot so much stuff that they don't use and do so many VFX that they don't use that you get into sort of wasteful territory Mm -hmm. and much more like the, the big budget directors who are sort of very exact 
you know, like Chris Nolan, I think sort of like knows exactly where he wants to shoot, how he wants to do it, how much he wants to do in camera, and pulls off things like a you know sort of uh, a budget you know that is um, is really impressive, even if it's on a big scale. Mm-hmm. So I think with something like Baby Driver is actually something where it was um, when I first handed in the screenplay, um, you know, line producer looked at it and said, "This is an eighty-day shoot." And then it, during that process, it's like, "Could you do it in seventy days?" And then it's like, <laughs> and then it's like, and I think so. The World's End was like a sixty-day shoot, and I said, "I can't do it for any less than 60. And I ended up doing it in fifty-seven. So I had to, and I ended up like putting some of my fee back into it to pay for like two or three days of filming because it's things like and you've seen the film so it's like you know there's pressure to sort of make cuts and save money and it's like we think you should cut the foot chase out and I'm like no 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 (laughs) can't cut the foot chase out I swear it's going to be your favourite bit of the movie (laughs) so I ended up paying for some of the foot chase and uh, it is my favourite bit of the movie (laughs) (laughs) like I said it's my favourite you've done so far I I thought it was just an exciting uh, just it it felt like you were having a blast making the movie and I I think that kind of thing shows in, in movies where the filmmakers just were delighting in putting it together. Well, it's, uh, the, the irony about that is, like, is it is, like, sort of, like, a real... I mean, it's funny to sort of make a movie that's, like, sort of a... It is a passion project. And and usually, it's like, people, when they make a passion project, it's something that's, like, sort of, you know, very uncommercial in terms of its subject matter. But this is, like, a sort of, a, you know, bank robbery heist, car chase kind of yeah. movie. But it is literally like my two passions of like film and music coming together. I've always been a huge music fan. And, you know, some people see this film as a bit of a departure from the other ones. And the irony is, is that I've had the idea for this one longer than like Space yeah, to Shaun the Dead. Yeah, you've wanted to do this for decades, I guess. Yeah, I mean, but here's the thing. 22 years ago, so the, the germ of the idea is when I heard the first track that's in the movie, which is Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion. So I'm 21 years old. I'm living in North London. I'm sort of um, commuting by bus to Pinewood Studios to uh, illegally edit my first movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, I'm uh, listening to that song and I'm visualizing like a car chase. I mean, literally, I would listen to the song and say, this is a great car chase in a film. But, you know, I'm 21. I haven't really made a proper movie. Um, I don't have any money. Like, so I don't have any muscle. Like, I've got a variety of review and that's it. Um, uh, more, I probably should have, like, so I think on the, on the basis of the variety saying, a promising, promising <laughs> Edgar Wright, I should have just come out and taken meetings, but I didn't. Put it on a business card. I know, I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I thought about that because I was thinking most people, some people would, like, go and, like, sort of, um, like, do a bunch of general meetings on the basis of that, but um, I didn't actually come out to Hollywood for another, like, you know, um, five years. Uh, anyway, the point I was making was that, like, I'd just been sort of building up to doing this film. And it wasn't until like 10 years ago. In fact, there's a Variety article about the announcement of Baby Driver from 2007. Oh. Because I signed a two-picture deal with Working Title in 2007 after Hot Fuzz. And the two things like mentioned are the world's end of Baby Driver. Interesting. So it's the first time I'd ever like mentioned it aloud to Eric Fellner and Naira Park was maybe like 10 years ago. And I said, I said, oh, I have this idea for this. Uh, movie called Baby Driver and they said what's that and I said it's like a, a car chase film driven by music it's like an and uh, they said oh that sounds good and Eric Fellner just straight away said I want to see you do a car film I said yeah it'd be like my dream to do like a car movie but it's a car movie powered by music and he goes what is that exactly he said let me write it down 
<laughs> Cut to literally like 2011. Um, you know, I didn't finish the screenplay until I was done with Scott Pilgrim. And uh, so that's actually what I like, did in that interim is that rather than uh, after Scott Pilgrim, I wrote The World's End with Simon and I wrote Baby Driver on my own. So I had that screenplay, a version of it. Um, and I think it was also just the building up the confidence to actually kind of do it. I mean, I couldn't have... Ma- I don't think I could have made that movie 10 years ago. Well, yeah, I was actually going to say, it's it's it seems to be potentially your most logistically complex movie you've made. Uh, that could be false, given, you know, some of the stuff that's going on in Scott Pilgrim, but... I just Definitely on a location basis, for yeah. sure, because, like, so if it's, everything is in camera and everything is on and location. all these practical effects and stunt work. I mean, you're working within a genre that, you know goes back a ways that you love uh, Walter Hill all of that how did you seek to innovate in that realm when it came to the stunt work how how did you want to put a different version of this stuff that you love on screen I guess well I guess the music is a big part part of it is the music sure I mean mean, also the music is driving the entire movie and then and then in terms of the actual action itself because it's sort of all choreographed you know to music and sometimes you know, so the movie is basically your. It's it's very subjective in that you're seeing the kind of story through Ansel Elgort's eyes, and you're sort of hearing it through his ears as well. So I think that's the sort of the real innovation in terms of everything is like on beat, except when it's not. Then things like when things go wrong, and you're suddenly deprived of the music. It's like you know, it's uh, it, it it's an alarming thing in the movie because like the character needs music and after a while the, the audience do too mm-hmm. um, the actual shooting of the action I think we just wanted to sort of I mean fly in the face of like the CGI green screen sort of school and just try and do it all for real which is logistically very complicated and um, shooting in a busy city like Atlanta and actually shooting car chase footage on the I-85 yeah. is a Herculean task um, which you know and to name check all the great artisans it would you know it's it's obviously just a team effort between stunts and and camera but locations like the locations department like Doug Dresser and Kyle Hinshaw who were like the sort of like um, you know our location guys just worked miracles basically like Doug Dresser who was our location manager I sort of made this big proclamation when we went to like Atlanta is I said, um, I did this big proclamation. I said, if we can't get a major freeway, there's no movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because usually when you go to Atlanta, like because it's one of the sort of tax break cities, they always kind of send you out to this country freeway. You said, oh, you can use this one. Everybody's used this one. <laughs> and usually when this location manager is saying, this is the one that people use, I say, well, I don't want to use that one. I want to use something new. I don't want right. to use the country freeway because it looks like smoking in the band. It looks like they got <laughs> away already. We actually had a thing with the uh, with the location department is whenever we would see this kind of leafy freeway. And I, I, and I by the way, it's, um, it was important to me to shoot Atlanta for Atlanta. Right. The script was written in Los Angeles because I was living here mm-hmm. when I wrote it. And then I rewrote it for Atlanta. And I thought, I really want to see like the sort of concrete, urban, built-up Atlanta and not really see any of the green, leafy Georgia because it somehow like lowered the stakes of the movie. Right. So almost the entire movie up until like the final like ten minutes is in like a concrete grey Atlanta. And I would say to the locations department, because every time they'd send me out to that country freeway, I'd be like, This is like smoking the bandit. 
And then there's another Burt Reynolds film from 1981 called Sharky's Machine, which mm -hmm. he directed, which is all in downtown Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So my mantra to the locations department would be, we've got to think more Sharkies and less Smokies. <laughs> and, and then basically, like, that dresser would always, like, say when he had locations, he goes, we think we've got some good Sharky locations. You know, <laughs> but it's the thing, more Sharky, less Smoky. That's good. Uh, last thing here before I let you go. Uh, just on that music point, is, is music typically a way into an idea for you? Is there is it generally? Because I know it is for me when I'm writing creative stuff. It's like a, it's almost always a song that gets me there. Yeah. Is that the way it is for you? Yeah. I mean, I think that's where me and the main character in Baby Driver are the same, is that we're completely motivated by music. So I like, I mean, this is a, a universal thing that people use a music as an escape or as motivation or as, you know, to sort of as inspiration. And that's no different. I mean, I like, I have to, you know, I have to drive to music, I have to walk to music, I have to work out to music, <laughs> you know, I have to clean the house to music. But specifically when I'm writing, I have to have the right kind of music to write. So I don't know if you do this when you're writing, is that I can't listen to anything with lyrics when I'm writing, unless I know the song so well. Yeah. But like, you know, if I'm like, and I've done it in every movie, it's like sort of, you know, when I was writing Shaun of the Dead, me and Simon would listen to horror scores the entire time. When we were like writing Hot Fuzz, we would listen to sort of like sort of action and cop music all mm -hmm. the time. You know, when I was writing this, I would, but then when I was writing this, I would, I had the songs planned out before I even wrote a word um, and as far back as like 2008 when I first, sort of first took the advance for Baby Driver the first thing I did bizarrely with a, a then music editor now Oscar winning composer Stephen Price yeah like I met him through that in 2007 I smiled when I saw his name in the credits I love well Steven. this is what's happened is like Steve Price was um, I said I said I've got these songs I had about eight of the songs which are the big set pieces and uh I said, I need a music editor to help me break them down because I don't read music. And Nick Angel, who's a music supervisor on Hot Fuzz, recommended Stephen Price. So I met him, got on like a house on fire. And so I still have his PDF that so he broke down all those songs for me. And then when I started writing the, the film proper, I wouldn't like write a scene unless I had the right song. So I kind of sit there and think, okay, this is a diner scene where Baby and Deborah meet for the first time and it's got to be something dreamy and I'm literally <clears throat> looking through my iTunes and it's like, oh, this Beach Boys track, this is great. Yeah. Okay, this song is like two and a half minutes long so the scene should be two and a half pages long. <laughs> so I went through in a very like sort of precise like sort of methodical way of, of trying to sort of like make the scenes fit the songs so it was a, like a big um, it was a you know like a huge endeavor and also the thing is there's a lot of people Quentin Santino included say never put songs in the script because um, <laughs> you're setting yourself up yeah. to kind of like get taken to the cleaners Yeah. but I, I had to write them in because there was no other way of getting um, the sense of it across to like actors or a studio so the screenplay for Baby Driver right from the first draft had all the songs written into it um, which is a, a you know like a sort of a dangerous game to play but like we're very lucky in that and amazing I'm going to give a shout out to Kirsten Lane our clearance person who managed to clear 35 tracks for this movie I was going to ask about that it's intense it's I mean it's amazing so it's like uh, props to her well we've got to get you out of here you're a busy man um, the movie's called Baby Driver the release date is June 28th June 28th go see it go buy the soundtrack I'm going to buy that double soundtrack. vinyl oh really yeah I'm going to buy the vinyl too and uh, like I said, it's my favorite movie you did, so congratulations, man. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate that.
you just starting your day or did you just get off? They call it go, you know. So what is it you do? I'm a driver. Oh, like your chauffeur. Anyone I'd know? I hope not. What is your name? Baby. Your name's Baby. B-A-B-Y Baby. It's the one you say listen to the music all the time? Is he uh, mental? Mental meaning slow. Was he slow? No. He had an accident when he was a kid. Still has a hum in the drum. Plays music to drown it out. And that's what makes him the best. One more job and I'm done. One more job and we're straight. Now, I don't think I need to give you the speech about what happens when you say no, how I can break your legs and kill everyone you love. Because you already know that, don't you? Yeah. The moment you catch feelings is the moment you catch a bullet. And your uh, waitress girlfriend, she's cute. Let's keep it that way. I want us to head west and never stop. You win? I'm in, baby. Good girl, you love her? Yes, I do. That's too bad. Baby. 